Well, we continue our study. Did I get it? There we go. Our study in Revelation. And we are going to uh, now move out of the letters to the seven churches. We spent a lot of time there. Uh, we probably didn't spend enough time, um, but uh, we could have spent probably seven or eight weeks on it easily rather than four. Uh, but we want to press on. Uh, we're going to actually be jumping back into the letters as we go for some of the specific details. We're going to see some of the themes that we went through the first sermon over the seven letters. We went through all seven letters. We picked up some of the themes and we tried to see them projected into the rest of the book. And of course, we're going to go back to those letters um, because the letters are important as we go through the chronology of Revelation 4 through 22 uh, and, and uh, to see uh, the application of the church. And that's why we want to keep going back to those letters because uh, it's this book is really written to believers as much of the scripture is. Almost all the scripture is written for those who want to follow after God, become his disciple. And so here are the instructions for those that want to know God and walk in his way. And so that's true also for Revelation, that this is instruction for us. And uh, the seven letters really help us uh, discover more fully how to apply different facets of this prophetic material to our lives, to our church life, our worship life, and also in our relationship with the world. And so we're not really going to get into the future for some time uh, in our work through Revelation. We still have at least two chapters to go, well, uh, one and two-thirds chapters to go before we get into really more future elements. Um, but that doesn't mean there isn't anything to learn here, uh, but we're going to be looking at God's working and what's been going on in, in several realms. And... This, I think, is really key to unlocking most of Revelation uh, to us. Uh, there, there are several principles, and we're going to talk about principles tonight. Uh, the goal is that next week you'll see uh, the beginning of a timeline. Because Just because we're not into the future doesn't mean we're not in a chronology, because we are. But we're going to talk a little bit very quickly about uh, several of the principles we're going to be applying, uh, and they're going to be very necessary right away in chapter 4, verse 1. We have to address it there because these principles have been largely ignored in the mainstream fundamental handling. And by fundamental, I mean, I mean the fundamentalist movement, the pre-tribulational, pre-millennial group in their handling of this verse. Uh, and yes, we do belong to a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial group, and my position is both of those although I don't use that the first terminology because it's uh, misleading. And before we get into this, let's go, Lord, in prayer, shall we? Lord God, we do thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that uh, we have it before us as instruction for how we worship, how we live for you. And we pray that you might direct us, that uh, we might follow your word. And we know that that requires us to handle it properly to rightly divide it. And Lord, we pray that you might uh, enable us to do that. Again, not by our own intuition, certainly, uh, for there will always come failure, 
but by the application of the fullness of your word and all that you have shared. Lord, we uh, need your help to tackle such a thing, and we thank you that you willingly provide it to all who ask. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, the principles laid out are pretty generally accepted in all other prophetic books except for Revelation. For some reason we get here and we start to abandon just good prophetic uh, principles is what I want to keep using, but they're tools, they're, they're uh, an approach to Scripture uh, that we need to lay in and we need to establish and we need to follow very carefully. Um, and we're going to handle a couple of those very quickly. Many of these you've heard before, uh, and certainly you're not, they're not brand new to you, but they need to be laid in very carefully. The first thing I want to share with you is the perspectives. Um, and this is uh, critical that we know where we are. And, and you might say, well, that's kind of obvious. And it is obvious. I, I, I have to tell you, the Bible says... This is going on in heaven. Um, and so it's kind of obvious where we are. But what we tend to disconnect from is that what the prophet sees in heaven, while it is related to his prophetic message, in and of itself is not uh, prophetic in terms of describing or um, trying to communicate uh, necessarily heavenly event or earthly events. So we're going to have several timelines on our chart. Uh, we're going to have uh, four for sure, um, five actually. We're going to have five uh, because one of them is just a historical timeline, just so that you have a reference point. And we're not going to talk about a lot of those events, but we're going to put them on there. Here's events on earth um, and that we've already seen and that we know will happen uh, and, of course, the ones we know will happen from God's Word um, will come right out of the Bible. But some of the events, most of the events on the historical, on the earth timeline, are going to be uh, events that we have in God's Word, described historically, particularly those that are redemptively oriented. Uh, and so we're going to have a timeline of things on earth. And that's kind of our base, because that's where we live. That's not really where Scripture begins. Scripture doesn't begin there. It really begins with God. That God created the heavens and the earth. And uh, over and over again throughout the prophets, one of the elements of their ministry is that they are given access to seeing that the, many of the things on earth are shadows or a reflection or the result of what's going on in heaven. And so they're given a glimpse of heaven. They're allowed to see what's behind the scenes, if you will. The curtain of the, of the drama of earth is lifted. And they get to see what's going on behind the scenes. And it's very exciting. And, and that's in all the timelines. So now we're going to have a timeline of earth and its events... And that's the things we relate to because we are so earthbound right now. Um, we're also going to have a timeline that is of heaven. And we need to distinguish, are we talking about what's going on in heaven? Or are we talking about what's going on on earth? And uh, 
and look at, at our perspective. Um, heaven takes a different look at things on earth than earth takes a look of itself. And we need to recognize that. And that would help you not just with Revelation, but with several passages, uh, books of the Bible. And you've heard me share this before, but let me just throw it out there. Um, we have a book that tells us that you are saved by grace through faith and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, as anyone should boast. We also have another book that says that, uh, don't you know that uh, you are saved by works and not just faith alone? Don't those contradict each other? That's James, right? Book of James makes it very clear that faith without works is dead. And therefore, it is obvious that you are saved by works and not just faith alone. And so we have two very radically opposite claims. You say, well, those can't be true. Correct if they were made from the same perspective. But what we fail to see is that one person is talking about the evaluation of faith in others from a human perspective, while the other one is talking in theological terms of God's perspective. And so Paul approaches salvation from a heavenly perspective. And here's what God is doing. And, if, and so all of this is, is the work of God through Jesus Christ in our life, and he is able to recognize true saving faith, and that that is then responded to with salvation. And in that sense, from God's perspective, um, faith alone saves. Okay? But from a human perspective, I can't see if your faith is genuine. And James is all about your relationship with each other. How do I know you're saved? That's really the question James answers. How do I know that these people around me are believers. Well, it's not just because they walk around and say, I have faith in God. It's because they're doing something that shows their faith in God. And really that's reflected in Paul's writing to Hebrews 11. Uh, by faith they did this. By faith they did this. So it's uh, obvious that faith is intricately connected to works. Um, but works are a support of faith and not ultimately uh, that which saves us is that from a human perspective, um, I would never treat you as a believer, no matter what you declared, if I did not see any evidence of it in your life. I would continue to treat you as someone who needs the gospel because your life doesn't show it. There's no evidence. There's no proof. There's no works. So I have to treat you as an unbeliever. I have to see your works. I have to. From my perspective, I cannot look into your heart and see your faith. And again, of course, First John is the whole third perspective, right? So Romans, a lot of Paul's writings, um, from a heavenly perspective, how does salvation happen? James, from a human perspective toward each other, how do we know salvation has happened? Uh, John, in First John, what's his perspective? How do I know I'm saved? Inside of me. Because the Bible says my heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So how do I know I'm saved? That's the question First John answers. And so we have three different books that kind of sound different. But they're coming from three different approaches to the same statement from different perspectives. 
And the same thing is true in prophecy. If we have to know the right perspective or we are going to get skewed and turned around. And that's why we study the whole Bible and we don't just focus and center all of our theology on just the Pauline perspective. We can't do it. Those other books of the Bible are there for a reason. And, and one is not higher or, or uh, preferred over any others. And this has gotten a, some of my friends in some trouble because they became myopic. They only saw one passage, and that was the passage that they're going to base everything else on. Well, they got out of balance. They got in trouble, and they came into conflict with me. They really came in conflict with God's Word. Because I'd pull out all these other verses. I said, well, and, and they kind of shrug or explain it away or just dismiss them. You cannot dismiss any of God's Word. And I'm not trying to find an end around of explaining them away. Um, the, you can read the books. And James is a wisdom book. How do, I, how do we know? How do we know about them? Um, Paul's is a theological text about what's going on in heaven. How did our salvation happen in Romans? And, and what was the, the divine aspect of it? And then, of course, 1 John is very practical. It's the practical book. How do you know you're saved? Well, you, let's just knock it right down. Let's list it off. Okay. In, in prophecy, the same thing. Your perspective must be tuned in to where you are. Are we talking about stuff going on on earth? Are we talking about things going on in heaven? And yes, there's going to be, are we talking about the past? Are we talking about John's present? Are we talking about John's future, our past? Are we talking about our future still today? So we have four time zones we're dealing with as well. And we want to keep those straight. Are we talking about the historical past? Almost all the prophets go back and review redemptive history. We're going to look at some examples next week, um, but uh, we all we have them. We we have them where they just redo, review what happened. What's their favorite event to review in the Old Testament prophets? Do you know? Just throw it out. You, you probably know the Exodus, uh, the events around that, and they'll they'll review it for. Sometimes a couple of chapters, they'll go on and on. They'll review the entire event, you know, of coming and crossing, the coming out of Egypt and, and crossing the Red Sea and coming to Mount Sinai and, and, and the whole 40 years in the wilderness. They'll, they'll review a large review of the whole uh, experience of a whole generation. Uh, but it all ties back to Passover, that redemptive act of God that then was played out in Israel over the whole course of the next generation, really into Joshua's generation of entering the promised land. And so the Old Testament prophets' favorite thing to do is to keep going back to that. And they do it frequently. They keep going back to that. Well, is that future? Is that prophetic future? No, that's prophetic past. They're reviewing history. And that's going to happen in Revelation as well. This is a Jewish prophetic book. And John employs the exact same mechanisms that the Old Testament prophets employed. We're not into a... 
Uh, I want to say this carefully. I'm going to back up. Um, I'm not going to use those words. I'm going to have to take time now. Um, we, we, are, we call ourselves dispensationalists. How many of you are familiar with that terminology? That we believe that there are dispensations, that God's interaction with man varies at different times. And so we talk about the age, the, the age of innocence, which is the garden. Uh, and we, or we talk about the age of the law, which is really from Moses. Some make it from Abraham, but uh, to Christ. We talk about ours is the age of grace, right? And we've broken it up, and we see the working of God with man distinct and different during these ages, and dispensations is what we call them. But we tend to force that onto the Scriptures too much and forget that these men... Um, saw Christianity as the completion of Judaism, not the replacement of Judaism. These men uh, followed the same, uh, with maybe the exception of one or two of the writers, one of them being Luke, uh, who did not have that history necessarily. Um, They followed the writing mechanisms that they were familiar with. and, And those... Uh, are evident throughout the prophetic writings. Even in the Maccabean that aren't in your Bibles, the, the intertestamental books that uh, we have access to, even those follow to some degree uh, those same patterns of writing. And so um, let's not disassociate John too strongly from Isaiah and from Zechariah and Malachi. Let, let's not distinguish him so much. Um, He's a prophet, and his prophetic writing is going to reflect them very greatly. There's that style. And so we're going to use the same tools. So we have these timelines, um, and you said, well, you already shared two of them, things going on in heaven, things going on on earth, and you said there's five. Um, That's because I didn't share the other five. There's going to be a timeline uh, of the nations. There's going to be a timeline of the harlot. And there's going to be a timeline of God's people, which is Israel, and then later the church, and then later the 144,000. Three distinct peoples of God, but they are in a timeline. And as one uh, comes to a conclusion, we have a grafting of the church, the church is raptured, but that just as that overlap of how do we get from Israel to the church, well, it wasn't just one day, Right? Christ says it's been fulfilled in me. We have this overlap of, um, of time where we transition from the Israel to the church, and it was culminated on the day of Pentecost. But it really began several months earlier. And so we are going to have the 144,000 become the redeemed people of God during the outpouring of God's wrath, the initial parts of it anyway. And so we have three distinct peoples of God, but they form one timeline. And so we're going to see those five. We're going to see the nations, false religion, the true faith. We're going to find things on earth and things in heaven. Now, are they disconnected from each other? No, we're going to find that they're intimately connected to each other. Um, But we want to make sure we understand the perspective. And then the timeline, past, present, near future, and far future. Those are the four 
time zones that you have to get in your mind as you come to Revelation. The past, John's present, the churches of that day, of John's experience, and that would include everything from the cross through the fall of Jerusalem. That's a 40-year that's a, a period. So I'm not talking about the day he got this revelation, but rather his, his life experience. And then we find what we would call the nearer future, because it's nearer than us, and that is the time between John and today. And this is an area that our fellowship, our, our movement, the pre-trib, pre-mill, have failed very badly. Because our contention was from Pentecost to the rapture, there is no prophetic material. How can that be? There's no significant prophetic event. And they, and they title that the imminent return. That there's no prophetic event between Pentecost, the start of the church, and the rapture of the church. So it could have happened in a day, could have happened in a year, could have happened in a thousand years, um, two thousand years now. Um, but there was no significant prophetic event that would hinder Christ's return at any time during the church age. And that is nowhere taught in the Bible. But yet we hold adamantly to it. And I can't find it anywhere. If you can find it, please share it with me. Because I haven't been able to find it. And so we have excluded from our entire study, in my seminary training, in my college training, um, in my interaction with peers, we have, we have really uh, just taken a huge chunk of history prophetically and extracted it from our prophetic research. We have taken a time zone out of the Bible, and that is the time zone between John and the rapture. Well, that's where we live. That's the people John was writing to. And it is certain that God's Word has significant things to say about what goes on in that period of time. And so, um, most of your prophecy teachers will deal with past, present, future. Okay, in fact, we have titles for them. The Preterists, the Futurists, and the Historicists. I didn't do them in the right order. Historicists, everything's past. Preterists, everything's kind of in his, in his present. And the futurists, everything is future. Where do they get that from? Well, chapter 4 of Revelation, verse 1. Here we go. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Wow. Okay. So everything from here on must be future. Right? Because what does this refer to? Obviously. It must be obvious to us all because our position has clung to it now for a hundred years. We have held to this position that after this is obvious. What does it refer to? After the rapture. What? Where did we get the rapture? This is what the standard position is. That the, this here refers to the rapture. What ha where did the rapture just happen? Where did the rapture just happen? In most pre-trib, pre-mill teaching, you've just gotten done and the rapture's already happened. 
by the end of verse 1 of chapter 4. Did you miss it? You blinked. (laughs) And you missed it. Come on, help me out. Where's the rapture? Oh, a voice like a trumpet called John to heaven. And that is, in its entirety, the entire depiction of the rapture in the book of Revelation. That's it. Aren't you excited? And everything, the rest of what John is going to hear from this, from this voice is um, future after the rapture. So pretty much nothing from here on out has anything to do with the church age. This is the position that I was taught in our seminaries. This is the rapture. John was called to heaven, and John was a representative of the church. And so when he goes to heaven, that's when we all went to heaven, or are going to go to heaven. And so that is the depiction of the rapture. Now, this is all built upon a chronology of the of the layout of Revelation, go back to chapter 1 and verse 19. I told you I was going to go back there when we get to chapter 4, and here we are. I'm coming back. It says, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which took will take place after this. What does that sound like? Just like what we just read. And we have connected the after this to take place after this to the take place after this. And so we conclude that John history is in chapter 1, that the uh, things which are are chapter 2 and 3, the churches, and the things which will take place after this, and this is, must be the after the church age, because the seven letters are the church age, and therefore after this must mean after the rapture, after the taking away of the church. Um, I just want to share with you that uh, I don't hold that position. Sorry. I think God has a lot more to say about the rapture than, hey, John, come on up here. we got something to show you what's going to take place after this. There is substantial information that we know is historical later on in Revelation that doesn't fit the future. Chapter 12 is one of them. It refers to the birth of Christ. Does the birth of Christ happen after this, the rapture? No, we know that that is history. Because it happened. (laughs) So we know that that's history. So we know that this cannot be referring to the rapture. So the question that we have to come up with is, what does it mean after this? And... Some of the historicists would say that after this refers to Christ. And so they view all of this as having happened between the death, burial, resurrection of Christ and the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That everything in Revelation that you're hearing is a description of things that happened in that 40 years. 
That's the historicist position. The preterist position would hold that it, it really um, refers to everything that kind of happened in the early church age and stretching a little bit farther forward. And then we can find these things happening in history. And, but pretty much the, the future is, is... And they divide up into several groups. Uh, and the future divides up into several different ways, whether it's Christ coming, whether it's the church bringing in the millennial kingdom. Um, but the future is now just anywhere, and God's going to do some things. And then the futurists, of course, are the position I've already shared with you, which is where our church traditions come out of. Um, and so the after this, whether that's the work of Christ, the after this, whether that's the church age, uh, after this, whether that's the rapture, um, makes a big difference, doesn't it? Of how you handle everything else. Uh, and I just want to share with you that uh, this is not an outline of the book that God gave John in chapter 1. What he gave him is, in, in the simplest Greek that John writes in, John writes in very simple Greek, is I'm going to show you things from the past, present, and future. The future is after you. After this is after this life, after this prophetic utterance. Uh, I would consider that the this that he's referring to is this revelation. So I'm going to show you things that were, that have been. I'm going to show you things that are, things that are going on in your age, in your days. And then I'm going to show you things that are going to go on after your days. And I believe that, and who he's talking to. I believe that he's talking to John, he means John's life. This revelation, this is the last writing of John. It will close off our scriptures. It will conclude the, the divine revelation of truth in this fashion, in, in, in the writing of scripture. And so um, he's going to show them what's going to happen after this. Well, that now opens up two periods of time. Not only the distant future for God's people, but a future between the end of John's ministry, which is the close of the apostolic period. The close of the, he's the last apostle alive. Many people thought that Christ would come before he died, even though he tried to correct that in his gospel. So at the close of the apostolic period, from that part of the church, which is, which, which, to, and the close of the scriptures, therefore, um, till the end. So now we have a period of time from there till the rapture that's also included in this book in addition to the stuff from the rapture to the kingdom and from the kingdom to the eternal state. And so it introduces a period of time that has been left out of our study of Revelation over the last hundred years. And really, pre-millennial teaching uh, was born out of the late 1800s uh, very late 1800s, and really didn't take root in Baptist churches till the early 1900s. Uh, and some great preachers did that, and they did a great service to the church in doing that. I do not want to speak despairingly of them. Um, they took us a step that we needed to take. We desperately needed to take that step to understand that, uh, that we're going to take prophecy literally. We're going to realize that all this has to happen before the kingdom of God, that Jesus is going to bring the kingdom, the church isn't going to do it, which is the Catholic position. The Catholic position is really um, post-millennial, which means that 
Christ will come after the church rules the earth for a thousand years. Um, there's not very many people holding to that these days. Because we're losing ground, right? Even the Catholic Church is losing ground. But that's still the official line, is that the Catholic Church will take over the world, um, do its job so well, the world will become Christian, and for a thousand years there will be a reign of peace where the Pope will, will have uh, peace on earth and the church will rule uh, globally for a thousand years and then Christ will come. That's their post-millennial position. So these guys did us a great favor, a great service by bringing into a literal interpretation of Scripture and bringing us to premillennialism. So our movement is only about a hundred years old. But I also have to say, it's a hundred years old, people. None of them are alive. Why does that matter? Because Daniel says only one generation will get it right. Only one generation will be able to unlock prophetic material in the book of Daniel, and I believe fully in the book of Revelation as well. And so Daniel's told um, to close the books. Let's go there. Let's go to the end of the book of Daniel, just real quick. Uh, and I'm not going to get as far as I thought tonight, but that's okay. Um, unless you want to really stay here and really dig. Daniel chapter 12. Daniel says exactly what all of us want to know. <laughs> here, verse 8. It's a great question. Don't you love Daniel? Daniel's one of my favorite guys. Um, he, he, he takes sin seriously. He feels the weight of it for his countrymen. He lives for God. He takes risks. Um, and uh, he serves the king. He's just a great example. And I love verse 8. Although I heard, I did not understand. God shows him the future all the way to Christ's coming. Shows him the future from a couple of these different timelines. Specifically the timeline of the nations. But he's seen the future. And he's seen the future all the way to the millennial kingdom. When Christ comes and takes over the world. The battle of Armageddon. He's seen the battle of Armageddon. Wow. And he says, I heard the explanation of it all, but I didn't understand it. And so this is what he says. My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? Now there's a few words been added to the English to help us understand it. What he really says, my Lord, what the end of these? What's the end of these? What, where's this all going? By the way, every italicized word is not in the original language. You know that, right? It's been added to help you get it. And sometimes those words confuse rather than clarify. Um, but what is the end of this? Where does all this go? Where's the end of these? I, I don't get all of this. And God doesn't say, just get over it. No, God says, go, Daniel. For the words are closed up and sealed to the time of the end. What? How long are they going to be closed up and sealed? Till the time of the end. Uh Daniel, you're not going to get it. And guess what? There's going to be thousands of years of people not getting it. Let's keep reading. Many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise 
shall understand. Wow. There's going to be believers coming and going. They're going to be purified. They're going to die. Um, but only at the time of the end will the words of future prophecy be really unlocked. And then it says the wise are the ones that are going to understand it. Wicked men aren't going to understand it. And so when I say that our movement is young, prophetically, church-wise, ecclesiastically, it is. Uh, it's only 100 years old. But it's also 100 years old. Which means that everybody that introduced it to us is what? Dead. All right, they weren't... I know you're 91 years old today. But I'm not talking about people born 100 years ago. I'm talking about people who were mature theologians 100 years ago. They are all gone. Every one of them. What does that tell you? We need to do more work. That they, while they got closer and clarified and brought some things forward, um, they weren't going to unlock it all. And so we have to do this work generationally. Every generation needs to pick up prophecy of Daniel and Revelation and start it over. And if my generation passes from the scene, which I don't think is going to happen without Christ's return, um, because so much has come out um, from God's Word so clearly, so perfectly, that you would have to hate the coming of Christ not to think it's going to happen soon. Then, if, but if our generation does get it wrong and we're gone, then the next generation needs to pick up Revelation and Daniel and work on it some more. It is the one area of doctrine that needs to be rewritten every generation. Every 40 or 50 years, we need to pick up Daniel Revelation and start over. And that sometimes means we got to dismantle a little bit of all of our assumptions and rework it. But we don't violate the principles. And that's what I want to establish is these principles. So this is what the trouble we get into in chapter 4, verse 1. We are immediately confronted with an interpretive schematic that violates all the principles and rules. All right? We're going to have principles of what a symbol is. What is a symbol prophetically? It is a representation of either a person, uh, an event, a uh, uh, action, and they are, symbols are almost always explained somewhere in the Bible. Maybe not right away, but somewhere they're going to be explained for us. So Daniel sees a bunch of creatures running around, right? And he goes, what are these? I see something that looks like a goat with that... It has one big horn, and, and uh, then it breaks off and foregrow in its place. Well, those were symbols. And he knows that, and he says, well, what does it mean? And God says, well, that's the nation of Greece. We know that there was Alexander the Great, that he was killed, and that his four generals took over and divided the Greek Empire into four different little empires, but it was all speaking the language of Greek. Ta-da! Daniel saw that before Alexander the Great ever lived. Those are symbols. Symbols are different than 
seeing actual creatures. When Isaiah gets to heaven in Isaiah chapter 6, what did he see? He describes it for us, right? And we're going to see something very similar he described in chapter 4. Is this the future? Is this the present? Is this the past? Is this earth? Is this, we know it's heaven because he says, come on up here. But is everything from here on out in heaven? No. We're going to see it from a heavenly perspective. There's going to be events on earth talked about, events among the nations about, that are going to be historical, present, near future, far future. And so um, we come into this and we're not going to mishandle this. Um, what is the door open in heaven? Verse 1. I looked and behold, nobody talks much about a door open in heaven. Some people relate that to Jesus Christ and his death, burial, resurrection. I am the door. I'm the way. And uh, if that's the case, then John didn't get, res- didn't get raptured. He got saved. If he hasn't gone through the door, right? To go through the door is a representation of accepting Christ. That he knock- stands at the door and knocks. And if anyone opens, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. Um, and so... The door, some people say, well, this is a picture or semblance of Christ. Um, But the fact is, nowhere in the Bible is it really explained. John doesn't even ask what the door is. He just saw a door, and he heard a voice. Now, did he hear anything but a voice? He saw a door. And by the way, what did Jacob see in his vision of heaven, in his dream? Jacob's dream. What did he see? He saw a stairwell, a ladder. Jacob's ladder, right? He saw a stairwell and angels ascending and descending. Um, So what does the stairs represent? Exactly. They're nowhere explained. This is just what he saw. And when Moses saw heaven, what did he see? He saw tabernacle in heaven and God says uh, take notice because you're going to replicate this on earth. And your replicate is going to be beggarly compared to (laughs) what you're seeing up here but essentially you're taking what you're seeing up here and you're making a copy of it a very weak little earthly copy of it on earth. Well those things no that's what he saw. And so What did John see? We are not told this is symbolic um, at all. We are not into the symbolic language of prophetic material. Um, He heard a voice. And and here's what, because they use this verbiage that sounded like a trumpet, which is he's going to say several times, which means there must be several raptures, right? Every time John mentions a trumpet, there must be a rapture, right? It is not a trumpet. Let's go to Thessalonians. You know what I'm referring to, right? You know where I'm going. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Does he stand up there and just open a door? And say, come on up here? No. It is absurd to to correlate that with what's happening here with a shout did john hear a shout 
He heard a voice that was really loud, trumpeting, clarity. A trumpet-like voice is a clear, not just loud, it's not shouting, it's clarity. Crystal voice. Very unlike mine, <laughs> especially tonight, having swallowed a bug. Now I'm going to have to swallow a spider to kill the bug. Never mind. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Then what did he hear? The voice of an archangel. So there's a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. All right? There's three distinct sounds. But because there's voice and loudness and a trumpet, we, they connect this event to this event. And they ignore that this event, there is only one thing, and that was, um, I heard a voice like a trumpet speaking to me. Well, that wasn't a trumpet sound. That was a voice that was like a trumpet. Please distinguish these. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24. Verse 31, which is another presentation of the rapture. It says, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. So, did we have angels talking in First Thessalonians? Do we have angels present in 1 Thessalonians 4? Yes, this voice of an angel. We had a shout and then a voice of an angel and with a sound of a trumpet. So we have angels. Are they making the sound of the trumpet? No, they have a great sound of a trumpet. Not like a trumpet, but of a trumpet. So we have angelic Noise or angelic presence followed or or, uh, coinciding with the sound of a trumpet. Not trumpet-like voices, but a true trumpet sound. And then they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. All right? Those two events are the same. But those two events are not what happened in John 4. Or in, I'm sorry, in Revelation 4 to John. They're coming in the clouds. We have a heavenly element coming down. Uh, there's not this idea that God is up there uh, and just opening a door and says, come on up here. They are dissimilar in almost every respect. The angels are sent with Christ to gather the elect. They use a trumpet call in addition to their sound and their uh, to the shout and to their own voices there's a trumpet accompanying it and this is a a a event this is a this is an incredible work going on here um and does is dissimilar to what we just have to find the rapture here which is where most of our positional people are at um i think is showing very poor commitment to the principles of interpretation that we use everywhere else in the Bible very well. So no, I don't find the rapture in chapter 4, verse 1. What I find is a prophet being taken from earth to heaven to see the perspective, much like Isaiah. And no surprising that when we get through and into the description of what he first sees when he gets there, it's going to sound just like what Isaiah saw. And that's going to be critical 
to realizing that what he saw are not symbolic. They are really those things. His arrival in heaven did not initiate prophetic material. It was initiating a description of what he saw, much like Isaiah. Isaiah gets to heaven. He describes the beings, and they almost, they are, they have six wings. Two that cover their eyes, two that cover their feet, and with two they, they fly. What does John see when he gets to heaven? He sees some creatures that have six wings. In heaven, active around the throne of God, singing. Can we connect those? Sure. But for some reason, when we get to Revelation, we throw out the fact that we've already been 